Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself in his word through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're going to look at the attributes of God as the Lord describes them in Psalm 15. Making some progress here. (laughs) The title for our study today is called, Who Gets to Go to Heaven? We want to make sure we know the answer to that question, right? So let's listen in to see what the Lord has to say about this. But real quick, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies, please take a second and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast and telling people about it on social media, sharing it with the people that you know. A simple tap of the like or the share button could help put the true gospel of Jesus Christ in front of someone's eyes, maybe even for the first time or encourage a believer who really needs it. And that's what we want, right? A pretty simple way to be used as an instrument in God's hand. So enough of that, let's check these verses. In Psalm 15, here's what the Bible says. A Psalm of David, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. All right, so a lot of people wonder how to get into heaven, right? Even people who claim to be Christian are kind of still asking that question a little unsure. I know, crazy, right? Now, a lot of people argue, debate, and discuss the parameters for what it takes. I mean, you got cults, religions, and even Christian denominations that have come up with their own standards and ideas, philosophies, doctrines. And I mean, the ideas are all over the place. And a lot of them even try to make up their own version of what they think heaven is so that it fits within the mold of their presentation and how to get there. (laughs) Yikes. So the truth of the matter is there is only one heaven and it's clearly described in the contents of the Bible. There is only one standard in terms of what we need to look to in how to get there. And that standard has already been documented in the Bible. The Bible is God's autobiography written by him through his spirit to reveal the truth about who he is. Now, since heaven is his dwelling place, it's his kingdom and his house, he alone is qualified to set those standards and decide who gets to come in and who doesn't get to come into his house, right? No one can speak for God, making up their own ideas. God is the only holy and righteous judge. And he has already explained the things that are required to dwell in his presence. And we just read through a lot of them. Now, thankfully, God's declaration is pretty clear and simple so that those who hear the truth and humbly receive it by faith can live confidently in God's word and promises. And that's way better than worrying about whether our self-made standards will actually hold up in value when we face him in judgment, especially since deep down, we all know 
they won't. Psalm 15 is a portion of scripture that makes the rules of God's kingdom pretty simple and clear. The psalm begins actually with a question. It says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? So this psalm, written by King David again, begins by referring to God as Lord. In some translations, it's all caps, L-O-R-D, right? Which is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. The psalm begins by recognizing and acknowledging God as the one true living God who is the eternally self-existing and self-sustaining creator and controller of all things in heaven and earth, who uniquely connected himself to the world through his covenants with Israel. So this title refers to God's supremacy, his transcendency, he's above everything, his glory, his majesty, okay? The reference to God as Yahweh was David's way of actually honoring God as the supremely exalted God most high. The question about who can dwell with him is not just a literal question, which he does answer through the rest of this psalm, but it's also rhetorical as well to honor God's majesty. So let's look at the question. Who can abide in God's tabernacle? Now, God's tabernacle refers simply to his dwelling place. The mention of the word tabernacle is a reference to the tent that the Israelites built by God's command, where God's presence rested during the time of the wilderness journey of the children of Israel. After God delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt, he gave Moses a command to build this tabernacle. That's just a fancy name for a dwelling place where God was going to rest with the people. The tabernacle was, in fact, the place that God wanted to use as the center of worship for the children of Israel. It was the place where the priests of Israel would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where the presence of God dwelt and rested in order for God to be connected to his people. It's a pretty, yeah, it was a tent, but it was pretty darn important. Now, the instructions for building that tabernacle were very specific. God explained that even though it was an elaborate tent, it had very detailed decorating and, you know, utensils and furnishings and that sort of thing, because it was a pattern of the things that were actually in God's heavenly kingdom. The tabernacle that the children of Israel built was not only a place of worship, but a place of instruction to learn about God through the things that they saw and also the things that took place there. Maybe one of the most compelling lessons that the people were supposed to learn was the one taught by the veil that was put in the tabernacle, which isolated the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the presence of God himself from the general congregation and also the priests. It was a dividing mechanism. Since only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for the sins of God's people, the tabernacle was a pretty profound way of answering David's question here in Psalm 15. Who could abide in God's tabernacle? Well, based on the laws and commands of God, no one could dwell in his presence. Only the high priest was able to enter where God's presence was, but only if he offered the appropriate sacrifices, the appropriate ways, was spiritually cleansed according to the righteous standards of God's law. And then to top it all off, he can only do so once for the entire year. That doesn't seem like a very intimate connection and relationship, right? The lesson of the tabernacle that Israel built speaks to the principle that David wrote about. God is Yahweh. He is the supremely glorious and majestic creator of all 
things. He is highly exalted above all things in heaven and on earth. And for that reason, he is holy. No one is worthy of dwelling in his presence. When the faithful people of God were blessed to have visions or miraculous transportations into the throne room of God, people like the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, for example, each and every one of those people fell on their faces in terror (laughs) because of the shame that they felt in God's perfect and brilliant presence. They knew that they didn't deserve to be where they were and were legitimately terrified of what might happen to them being in the presence of the holy and supremely glorious creator and controller of all things. We could all learn a little something from that kind of attitude, that kind of humility and fear, right? David also referred to God's holy hill. This is a reference actually to Mount Zion. Now, Psalm 2 explains that Mount Zion not only refers to the city of Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem that the Messiah will build after his judgments in the world to those who oppose him. Psalm 2 teaches that the Messiah will come into the world to judge and purge the sin of the world, cleaning things up properly so that he can establish his kingdom according to the promises and righteousness of the Father. So, the mention of Mount Zion, or God's holy hill, is a reference to the fulfillment of God's eternally unconditional promise to establish his righteousness in this world through the Messiah and through the nation of Israel. This actually presents a problem, believe it or not. Who can endure the judgment of the Messiah? Who can escape the coming wrath of God upon the ungodly and the unrighteous? If no one is perfect or righteous and everyone is unable to dwell in the tabernacle of God, who can actually escape his coming judgment? It's our inability to dwell in the presence of God's glory that guarantees all people are worthy of God's coming judgment. That's not good news. The good news is what follows. David's question seems simple, but it's actually really problematic for all people unless you understand the good news part of it. The truth is, no one can dwell in the kingdom of God based on the natural condition that we're all born in because the scriptures show that sin separates people from God and we all sin. And according to the scriptures, we sin way more than we actually think. No one is worthy to dwell on God's holy hill after the Messiah judges the world because no one can endure God's judgments or prove their innocence of guilt before God. Personal accomplishments or cultural standards of righteousness are not going to cut it. That stuff is trash in the eyes of God, who is supremely glorious and holy. Thankfully, Psalm 15 shows that there is, in fact, a way to receive the blessings of God a way to enter into his presence and a way to get to heaven in spite of who we are and the natural condition of our souls. Psalm 15 identifies the only type of person that will be able to get where God is. And that's the good news. So check it out. David listed seven essential characteristics that are required to get into heaven. Those who do not have these characteristics will not get into heaven. Just plain and simple putting it out there. That's what the Bible teaches. So beginning in verse two, Psalm 15 says this again, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So the first characteristic that David mentioned is that we must walk uprightly. The term uprightly means without blemish. It refers to someone that is whole and complete. While this description seems like just a simple statement, it presents another human problem. Since all people are born spiritually dead, according to Psalm 51.5, no one is whole, complete, or without blemish. It's commonly understood that no one is perfect. The problem is that the Bible expects people to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And that's based on what Jesus said himself in Matthew 5.48. This means that as people, we are unqualified to change ourselves or prepare our own condition to get into heaven. We cannot perfect ourselves, especially our souls. In order to be perfected, to be made whole and complete, to be made without blemish, we require supernatural intervention, right? We need God himself to perfect us because he's the only one that's perfect. How can something imperfect perfect something else? Doesn't make any sense, right? We need God to make us whole and complete. Now, since God is Yahweh, the eternally self-existing and self-sustaining holy creator, he's the only one who is whole and complete in himself. We need God to remove our blemishes, especially the spiritual ones on our souls, which most of us can't even see and don't even know are there. And then we need him to provide power that only he has in order to walk uprightly like the Bible says. God has to perfect us. God has to make our souls whole and complete. And that goes far beyond just changing the circumstances of our problems. God has to cause us to be upright in our hearts, in our souls, and keep us in that condition in order to get into his house. The second characteristic that David wrote about deals with conduct, right? The things that we do. The people who get into heaven and are able to dwell with God forever are the people who work righteousness. Now, the word righteousness is the same word used to describe the righteousness of God himself. (laughs) This might seem like a simple issue, but again, it presents another human problem. Psalm 14, the, the, the psalm that came right before this, teaches that no one is righteous, no, not one. In other words, no one can duplicate the righteousness of God. No one can work like God does. No one can do what God does. Yet the perfect power and wisdom God shows by his righteous works is what's required in order to enter into his kingdom and actually dwell with him. We need God to work another miracle on our behalf since we can't do what he demands. We need God to deal with our unrighteousness in order that his righteousness can cover the corruption of our souls. Again, corruption that most of us don't even know we have. If God doesn't do this work, it doesn't matter how good we or others think we are. We'll never be good enough based on God's standards unless his righteousness is somehow imparted to us. So let's move on to the third thing. David wrote that those who want to get into heaven must speak truth in the heart, 
So clearly this refers to how we talk, but also our motives behind our words. <laughs> That's where it gets tricky. Notice that David didn't just write about the words that we speak in truth. There are a lot of people who speak truth, but have crooked motives behind their speech. They might say what's right according to scripture, but seek to manipulate people and circumstances to fulfill selfish ambitions. They might say what's true, but really, you know, behind the scenes want to exalt themselves above others. They might say true things, but really only with the intent to be glorified, right? Not with the motives of the Holy Spirit to walk like Jesus, being a servant to all. The Bible shows that even the devil spoke truth when he tempted people at various times. However, his objective was to steal, kill, and destroy. His truth was seasoned with deception in order to confuse and lead the people of God away from God without them even knowing it. Now, unfortunately, the Bible says that all people speak out of the abundance of our hearts and that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We learn that bitter truth in Jeremiah 17, 9. And it's according to this truth that it shows us how impossible it is for the natural human mouth to speak truth while also having pure motives because our hearts are incapable of producing purity on their own. While we are required to speak with inward integrity, honesty, and sincerity concerning the things of God, the natural human soul isn't able to do it. Maybe worse, the Bible teaches that the natural human soul isn't even willing to do so. So if we expect to get into heaven, we need yet another miracle. God has to change our hearts and fill our mouths to speak the truth of his word in sincerity and purity of heart. Now, only God can change the heart in order to affect our speech this way. We need God to do that work in us and through us in order to dwell where he is. No human being is able to do that for themselves. The fourth thing that David addressed refers to the ways that we treat others. David wrote that we should not backbite, do evil against our neighbors, or take up reproaches against others. In other words, we're called to love others as we love ourselves. If we're speaking the word of truth and sincerity of heart, we shouldn't be people that are frequently engaged in gossip, trash-talking, hating, and spreading rumors, right? If we're walking uprightly, we shouldn't be trying to take advantage of others in order to promote ourselves. If we're doing works of righteousness, we should be aware of how our actions are affecting others in spiritually adverse ways, right? Yet again, the Bible shows that there's another problem. Since the heart is naturally wicked and corrupt, we are prone to selfishness. And history proves that true. History shows that we as people are not likely to die to our personal ambitions in order to selflessly serve the needs of others by our own personal creative thinking and personal desire. That's not going to happen. The interesting thing is that that's exactly what the Bible teaches that love is. Love is dying to self to serve the spiritual needs of others by revealing the characteristics of Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah by His Spirit in order to do so. Now, history shows we are far more concerned with our own physical and material desires rather than the spiritual integrity of others. And that's true of church also. This means that we need God to cause yet another change, another miracle. If we want to get into heaven, 
We need to abstain from gossip, trash talking, and treating people poorly while in pursuit of our own personal comforts according to our own personal standards and opinions. We need God to change our hearts to get away from living that way. We need God to change our hearts so that we're actually willing and able to die to self in order to serve the spiritual needs of others contrary to human habit and nature, just like Jesus did. David then wrote about how we deal with others as groups and our personal affections towards those groups. David wrote that a true child of God that will eventually dwell in his presence is one that despises others who live in habitual sin. Those who are destined for heaven are not comfortable spending time with those who are comfortable living as people who are destined for hell. Those who walk uprightly should not feel comfortable with those who walk crooked. The people of God should not be regularly engaged with those who deny God, reject God, and don't listen to his word, his standards, his judgments, or have any convictions about any of those things. In other words, those who are destined for heaven, like legitimately, are not unequally yoked in relationships to non-believers where those relationships compromise and corrupt the work that God desires to do in the lives of his true people. Now, this doesn't mean that God's true people are totally disconnected from the world and all non-believers. That's not even really possible, and it's actually disobedient to the Great Commission. It does mean, though, that those who are destined to dwell in God's kingdom live as people who have been graciously made citizens of that kingdom, not as citizens of hell. We don't join ourselves to sin as a habit of life living unrepentantly. At the same time, those who belong to God and are heavenly citizens are those who uphold and encourage other children of God. The children of God do not put down God's other children. The Bible calls for God's people to treat one another as brothers and sisters of our heavenly father, recognizing and appreciating the miraculous work that he's doing in each of us because we all require the same degree of mercy to be in that position to begin with. God's people are called to support, encourage, and uphold those who fear God and desire to live for his glory by faith in his word, walking in the spirit. Now, this facet requires God's work too. In order to treat God's enemies appropriately and God's children appropriately at the same time, we need God to identify who's who. And then we need God to influence us to despise the sin of the wicked while also loving them like God does and also encourage the children of God with the same quality of love that only comes from God right? Who's going to be able to do that on their own? (laughs) Are you seeing how God has to be in charge of all of this? No one can do all of this perfectly on their own, not even for a single day. Now, Psalm 15 also deals with money. The Bible teaches that the way we treat money will have a huge bearing on whether or not we get into heaven. Now, don't check out on me now. (laughs) Listen up to how the Bible actually deals with this issue in truth. In verse 5, David wrote that those who are able to enter the kingdom of God are those who do not use money for usury and don't take bribes against the innocent. See, I'm not asking you for your money here, (laughs) twisting the Bible to benefit myself. The Bible just told us not to do that. So these two examples speak to bigger issues of the heart that are ultimately made manifest in how we deal with money. So check it out. The practice of usury was prohibited in the law of God, 
And if you don't know what that is, usury is like charging someone interest. This means that that's unrighteous in God's eyes. God's law prohibited the children of Israel from charging interest to one another within the children, the nation of Israel, right? They were not to use money as a way to increase their personal worth and enterprises while hurting the lives of other Jews, inflicting them with unpayable debts, right? Don't bury your own kind, basically. God didn't want his people expressing their selfishness using money as a way to increase their personal gain at the expense of their own people. When God spoke about usury, he reminded the children of Israel that they were all in debt themselves at one time. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them and freed them from that bondage and didn't charge them anything for it. God didn't expect repayment with interest for the work that he did. God delivered Israel on the premise of mercy and grace and expected his people to treat one another the same way. See, that's what it says about money. Hopefully you can breathe now, right? (laughs) God also frequently spoke about the issue of bribes, but he did so often to describe his own character, which is kind of interesting. The Bible often says that God is not a respecter of persons and he does not take bribes from people. Now, God says these things in the context of his fairness in judgment, which means that he's not influenced and swayed to do wrong by the persuasion of others seeking to respect and honor him for their own personal purposes. God expected his people to be the same way. In order to get into heaven, we cannot be influenced by others to do things that are contrary to God and his character, especially for the hope of getting money. We cannot be selfishly motivated to live comfortably on our own at the expense of others. That's the issue here. Remember, if Jesus is our example, he died to himself, literally, for the benefit of others. That's the standard. The problem is that since human nature is selfish, we need to have God change us and teach us to be like him, like we saw of Jesus. Again, we need another miracle. Now, lastly, David wrote that those who live this way will never be moved. Those who live this way will not only be able to enter into God's tabernacle and dwell with him, but also they will never be removed from his presence. That's good news. Those who live this way will be able to dwell on the Messiah's holy hill and will never be kicked off of it. That's good news, right? If we get the benefits of all these miracles that are required to change us, this is great news. Having escaped the wrath of God that is to come, God assures that those who live this way, that he will eternally preserve them and dwell with them as Yahweh. Psalm 15 ultimately teaches that if we want to dwell with God, there is nothing we of ourselves can do about it. We need God to work a miracle of the greatest kind. We need God to make us upright changing our attitudes from within. We need God to manufacture works that are equal in righteousness to his own. We need God to fill our mouths with his truth as a result of the change that he causes in our hearts so that our words are holy and sincere. We need God to show us mercy, compassion, gentleness, and grace so that we can then show the same to others through this biblical brand of love. 
We need God to sanctify us from the evil of the world while also living humbly to serve the needs of others that he identifies as his own. We need to die to selfish ambition and abstain from being influenced and motivated by selfish gain. In other words, we need God to place us upon the rock of Jesus Christ so that we can be established in his presence and kept safe on his holy hill. We need to be born again by his Holy Spirit based on biblical faith in the identity, work, and purpose of Jesus Christ as given to us in the testimony of his word from Genesis to Revelation. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except by me. Look, if we want to get to heaven, the only way to get there is if God himself takes us there. The only way God will take us there is if we believe that Jesus is God who promised he would take us there. We need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, to fulfill all of the Father's eternally unconditional promises as a man, starting with the promise he made to deal with sin on our behalf. We need to trust that the things that David wrote here about getting to heaven are exclusively true and that there are not other ways to backdoor God into his kingdom and that Jesus is the only way we can address the problems that our natural condition presents. And that's what the Bible teaches about the one that we know as God. So before I get out of here, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder. Please keep in mind that all of the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener supported. This means that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that makes this stuff available to you as well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the word and prepare to this degree. Look, if this podcast is helpful to you, if you value this sort of teaching, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. I know we just talked about money and usury and that sort of thing. Pray about this stuff. If God will lead you, do it. If he doesn't, don't. Look, we're a legit nonprofit, a 501c3, operating through our parent ministry called Proper Knowledge Ministries. If you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing here, you can visit www.pastorbside.com, like the flip side of a record, hit the support tab, and when you get there, give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads. I'll tell you this though, every bit helps. If you think it's a lot or a little, the Lord don't care. He is excellent and multiplying. And if the Lord would lead you, maybe even consider partnering monthly with us, making your gift recurring, kind of like tithing to a church because the church is founded on the true teaching of the Bible. And clearly that's exactly what we do here. And as a lot of you know, there isn't a whole lot of this taking place out in the churches of our country today. Something to think about, something to pray about. So again, Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the study and hope you were blessed by it. Hope you were encouraged by it. So until next time, peace out.